Well, good morning, church. As most of you know, my name is Mike. Pastor Isaac is away this week uh, on vacation, as Dave already said. Uh, so we are looking forward to having him come back. And in the meantime, it's my joy and privilege and responsibility to share God's word with you this morning. We don't have to look very far in this world to find suffering. In fact, we usually don't even have to look any further than our own lives. And when we encounter suffering, we all find ourselves asking the same questions. Where is the answer? Where is hope? And where is God? Johnny Erickson Tata is a name that many of you are probably already familiar with. But let me tell you a little about her. She is a woman who is no stranger to suffering in her life. As a healthy, active teenager in the year 1967, she was diving in a lake with some friends, and she tragically misjudged how deep the water was. And when she dove, she broke her neck. And then for the rest of her life since then, she has been paralyzed from the neck down. And when you read her story and listen to her tell it with her own words, she says that especially the next two years were a deep time of struggle for her. She struggled with anger, despair, depression, and suicidal thoughts. And she also didn't find much comfort in many of her Christian friends. She said this, I was sick and tired of pious platitudes that well-meaning friends often gave me at my bedside, patting me on the head, trivializing my plight, with 16 good biblical reasons why all of this had happened. And though Johnny was in deep pain, eventually she says that her clenched fists turned into a searching heart. And she really did want to know answers to the questions of why did this happen? Where was God? And how could this possibly be part of any good plan? And God answered her searching. He didn't answer her through 16 abstract reasons, but the presence of a person. His name was Steve, and he was a young man with an open Bible and a big heart. Now, Steve wasn't a trained philosopher or counselor or an especially gifted teacher, but Steve did know who he needed to point Joni to, Johnny, to her in her suffering. He knew that looking to Jesus and bringing him into our suffering can change everything. So today, brothers and sisters, we're going to look at suffering in the presence of Jesus. And our text is going to be John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. So you can begin turning there, John chapter 9. And in this story of Jesus healing the man born blind, we will see that the presence of Jesus changes everything in our suffering. Jesus brings us a better reason for suffering. Jesus brings us a better response to suffering. And Jesus brings us a better result to suffering. So that's where we'll be today. And brothers and sisters, my hope and my prayer by the grace of God this morning is that God will use this text and the truths he has put there for us to encourage us whatever suffering we are facing. Or whenever we face suffering, I think he has a word for us today. So let's begin by reading the story together. John chapter 9 verses 1 to 7. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, 
Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of God who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. So friends, first let's look and see how Jesus brings us a better reason for suffering. So in this story, Jesus and his disciples are just out for a walk one day in Jerusalem, probably somewhere near the temple, and they come across a man begging, born blind from birth. And this prompts the disciples to ask Jesus a question. And in fact, this is the same question that is probably one of the first on our minds when we see intense suffering in our own lives or in the lives of others. Their question is, why? Why is this happening? And if many had a chance to ask God one question, I think that the reason for suffering would probably make the top of most people's lists, wouldn't it? So we have a unique opportunity here to, here to see what God's response would actually be. Because you see, we all want to know the reason for suffering. We all want to know why. And I think first, we want to know the reason for suffering so that we can find a solution, right? You feel pain in your foot, you ask yourself, what did I step on? You don't pass a test, you ask yourself the question, what did I miss? You don't get that job that you interviewed for, and you ask yourself, what were they looking for that I didn't bring? If we can figure out the answer to why we are suffering, whatever it may be, maybe we can find a solution and prevent the pain. But also there's a deeper reason why we want to know why there is suffering. And I think that reason is we want to know that in suffering there is purpose and there is justice. And this is the question we would often ask God if we had the chance to. God, if you are good, how could you possibly be letting this happen if you really cared for me? Now, we could spend a lot of time on that question. And in fact, I know we've talked about that question specifically before here at the church. But let me just quickly point out here that this question reveals a lot. Because it shows that as people, as humans, we believe that this world should have justice. We believe that this world should have purpose. As meaningless as it may seem and as crazy as it may be, we believe this world should be ordered in purpose and justice. And friends, that's a good thing. I agree with that too. But what we must realize is if this world is an accident, if there is no creation behind it, then a world with purpose and justice just doesn't make any sense at all. So even to be asking the deepest questions of our hearts, a question that every human being asks, we need God to ask them. So even in our asking, God is encouraging us to draw near to him and say, God, I know there should be justice. God, I know there should be purpose. I just can't see it. Help me see it. Now, 
when we ask for the, about the reason for suffering, usually we have some ideas already about what the reason for suffering might be. And the disciples are no different. In fact, they throw two ideas to Jesus about why they think this man born blind might be suffering the way he is. And we read them in verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So first, the disciples suggest suffering can be a result of our own consequences for our choices. Suffering can be consequences for choices we have made. And sometimes when we're looking for suffering, we really have to know, look no further than ourselves. And in this story, though, this seems like a crazy suggestion, doesn't it? Think about the situation. This man was born blind. How could he possibly have done anything wrong to put himself in this position? So this doesn't seem like a very good answer right here. And we'll see that it's not. Um, many people back then did think that people could even do wrong things or commit sins in the womb. So maybe that's where some people were coming from, even though they're certainly wrong in this situation. But even though the disciples are wrong in their reason for him, their reasoning is not wrong. We need to often look no further than ourselves for suffering. And the scriptures affirm this in general, that this is, can, can often be the case. Scripture teaches that God hates evil and will punish it. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that one way God deals with evil is he will often give us over to it. He will allow the consequences of our choices to bear fruit in our lives, and so we suffer the consequences for evil and sin. And even earlier in this gospel, in John chapter 5, Jesus tells a crippled man who he heals, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So even Jesus recognizes that often our own choices and sins can be what brings suffering into our lives. And we know this in other ways too, right? We know this with our bodies and our health. If we overeat, if we overdrink, if we oversmoke, we know there's going to be consequences on our lives. We know this with our work. If you are very lazy, nobody's going to want to hire you and pay you. If you're a workaholic, the rest of your life is probably going to suffer. And we know this in our relationships. Patterns of lying, anger, selfishness, if left unchecked, sabotage, erode, and destroy the relationships we have. So yes, much of our suffering is the result of our own choices. But there is one other answer that the disciples give we should take a look at. They also say that suffering can be a consequence for the actions of others. And in this situation, the disciples are thinking, okay, this must have happened before his birth, right? So what about his parents? Maybe they did something terrible. Maybe they are wicked people. Maybe they sinned. And that's why this man is suffering. Now we'll see again in a minute that the disciples are completely wrong. That is not the case in this situation. But again, before we move on, let's think about their reasoning because their reasoning isn't. Much suffering in this world does come from not our own choices, but for the choices of others. This can be small things. Somebody has a bad day and they start snapping at you in the checkout line. Maybe somebody cuts you off in traffic. But this can also be huge things that have life-devastating consequences. Abuse, slander, abandonment, betrayal. Much of our suffering can be traced back to the choices of others. And this is a biblical category as well. Think about Joseph, sold into slavery by his own family, by his brothers. 
the ancient Israelites often suffering oppression from either their enemies around them, enemy nations, or even their own wicked kings. And then ultimately, much of the suffering in the world, Scripture teaches us, comes back and traces its root back to the choices of our very first ancestors, Adam and Eve, when they chose to define good and evil for themselves, when they chose to decide what was right and wrong and not follow the love and the wisdom of God. So yes, this is very true. Much suffering is a consequence from the choices of others. So let's take a step back for a second, friends. How are you feeling so far? Are you encouraged yet? (laughs) Where does all of this theologizing leave us? Not in a very good place. The blind man is still blind. If our suffering is our own choices, maybe we're feeling guilty and responsible. And maybe... Uh, even if we, we don't have the power to change our situation, maybe if it's our own choices, we don't even have the power to change ourselves in a meaningful way. And if suffering has been caused by someone else in your life, what else can you do but maybe cast a blaming finger? Plus, the disciples aren't looking very good, are they? Here's a man suffering, and what do they do? They stand back, fold their arms, point at him, and start speculating and passing judgment about the reason for his suffering. Didn't any of them think to ask Jesus to heal him? Didn't any of them think to drop some of their money into his basket for alms? No, the religious people are more interested in passing judgment than they are in actually trying to help. So what changes our situation? What changes the situation of the blind man here in this story? Well, friends, not what changes the situation, who changes the situation. The presence of Jesus changes everything. And let's take a look. Because again, Jesus brings a better reason for suffering, God's good, redemptive work. So let's look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So first, friends, Jesus brings us something that we desperately need when we're looking at suffering. He brings us God's wisdom. Jesus reveals that the disciples' reasoning about suffering is short-sighted. Yes, sometimes suffering is our own fault. Yes, sometimes suffering is the fault of others. But in this case, it's neither. Jesus tells the disciples, you are wrong. And in a way, he's telling us, you are wrong in your thinking about suffering. The disciples couldn't know the answer to why this man was born blind. The blind man might have even not known the answer to why he was born blind. We would certainly not know the answer to the reason why this man was born blind, yet God does. We think we are pretty smart, but Jesus reveals that the workings of life, justice, and God's wisdom are far bigger than our simple categories. More important, this is very important, so please listen. More important than figuring out the exact reason for our suffering is trusting in the wisdom of God. And second, Jesus doesn't just bring us God's wisdom to suffering, but he brings us a better reason to suffering that the works of God might be displayed in us. Friend, what if I told you For whatever situation you may be thinking of this morning, or whatever situation you're thinking of in someone else's life, what if I was able to tell you this with full confidence? 
What if in your suffering, instead of blaming yourself or blaming others or despairing because you have no idea who to blame and how to fix it, I told you that the reason God has allowed suffering in your life is because he wants to display his mighty power and his good plan in you and through you. What an answer of hope. Suffering doesn't just have to be pain. Suffering doesn't just have to be punishment. Suffering can be for good. This gives us hope. Because while most of us may not understand suffering when it happens, we are prepared to accept it if we know it serves a good and redemptive purpose. And let me give you an example. Uh, Some of you have know about this and you've been praying and I appreciate it a lot. I've been having some struggles with my hands over the past couple months. And so just this past week, I went to get some tests done by the doctor. And before I even went into the test, people were warning me about them a little bit. And you see, for this test, the first thing is to test out your feeling. They, they take some electrodes and they progressively shock you at higher and higher levels in your arms. So that's part one. And then part two, they take needles and they stab you in various places. And they roll them around a little bit to see how your feeling is again and again and again and again. And even as I was sitting in the room before the test, uh, the doctor who was going to run it joked with me. He's like, you know, sometimes I feel like that guy in The Princess Bride. You know, that guy who comes up and says, the pit of despair. I feel like I'm running a torture chamber. But, you know, honestly, I'm glad they warned me. It wasn't terrible. It really wasn't that bad. It was manageable. But taking a step back from the test... Why would me, why would I or any other sane person allow somebody to shock them again and again and again and stab them again and again and again? Why would we ever be willing to subject ourselves to that? Well, the reason is we understand that a measure of suffering is worth it if it brings a redemptive good. We are willing to endure suffering if we know it will result in a greater good. And Jesus tells his disciples, and Jesus tells us here in this story, that he is here. He is the great physician. In his presence, in his wisdom, and in his power, our suffering transforms from our meaningless pain to God's redeeming good. And friends, this is the invitation he makes to us today. Whether your suffering is your own fault, whether your suffering is the fault of somebody else, whether you don't know, his invitation is, I am here, bring me into it, let my presence be with you in your suffering, because whatever the cause, I will change its reason. I will change its result. Raising kids involves a lot of crying, doesn't it? And I'm just talking about the parents right now. So... I feel like Amelia and I are still pretty new at this raising kids business. Um, You know, our son is two years old, but we just have one. So in some ways, I still feel like a new parent, I guess. But in the short time that I've been doing it, uh, I realized that there's a lot of suffering that happens as you're growing up that probably doesn't make much sense at the time. Growing up is full of frustrations. There's ouchies and owies everywhere, right? I'm bumping my head. I'm stubbing my toe. I'm skinning my knee. Why is this happening? Also, mom and dad make me eat my dinner. Mom and dad make me go to bed even when I'm not tired. Mom and dad clean and trim me even when it is very uncomfortable. 
And mom and dad even sometimes make me sit and listen to other people and sit and listen in church. And sometimes it's very boring. But what parents can see that children cannot is that those bumps and those bruises teach us how to use our bodies safely and control them. Our parents know that we won't grow up healthy and strong if we only eat cookies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Our parents know that sleep is good for us and important, that routines are good for us and important, and that staying clean and that being able to patiently listen to others are also incredibly important to our health and to our happiness. So if good parents, even in this world, can have greater wisdom to know that suffering can be for good, friends, what about God? Isn't his wisdom greater? Isn't his sight further? Isn't his maturity vaster? And God sends Jesus into our suffering and says, trust my wisdom, trust my power, trust my plan. This may seem evil to you, but I and I alone can and will use it for good. I am going to show God's power, my power, in your life. So friends, let's draw near to him then. Let's put aside our, our guilt that has a place, but let's put it aside. Let's put aside our uncertainty. And even at a its, at its point, let's put aside our questions. And let's trust in the reason and the wisdom and the answer that Jesus himself brings us in our suffering. But not only does Jesus give us a new reason to suffer, a better reason, Jesus also gives us a better response to suffering. So we might understand suffering differently in light of Jesus' teaching, but what do we do when it happens? How do we respond to it? Now, when it comes to suffering, we have a very natural response. If you happen to bump your hand onto a hot stove, what's the first thing you're going to do? Pull away, right? Jerk back. You almost don't even have to think about it. It's your natural response. Our natural response to suffering is to pull away in the hopes of ending it. Suffering causes us to pull away. But we don't just pull away physically. We pull away in other ways as well often. We'll pull away uh, especially when suffering is intense and enduring. And one way we pull away is we pull away from God himself. And there might be many reasons for this. Maybe we feel guilt over the sin that we think caused our suffering. Maybe we feel shame over being sinned against. Maybe we struggle to believe that God actually cares for us because he's allowing this to happen. Maybe we're angry towards God for allowing it to happen. Or maybe, let's be honest, sometimes we are just tired and worn out and fatigued from fighting the fight of suffering. But suffering doesn't just lead us often to pull away from God. Suffering also often leads us to pull away from others when they are suffering. Like the disciples, we tend to distance ourselves. Maybe we want to protect ourselves and avoid whatever pain they're going through. Maybe we really do look down on them and judge them and blame them for their suffering. Maybe we just can't be bothered. Or maybe we just don't know what to do. However, Jesus has a completely different response to suffering, doesn't he? His approach is unnatural. When we see a contagious leper, we run away. Jesus embraces him. 
We judge a Samaritan woman who has destroyed her life going from bad relationship to bad relationship. Jesus sees a sinner in need of grace. We see a man blind from birth who will never amount to anything. Jesus sees a man who God will use to put his glory on display. We see a broken world with too many problems to fix and we lose heart. Jesus gives up the glory of perfect heaven to come down into that broken world to rescue and redeem it. You see, Jesus, unlike us, doesn't run away from suffering. Instead, Jesus calls us, like himself, to draw near in suffering. So first, Jesus' word to the sufferer is, draw near to me, draw near to God in faith. And it's beautiful to see how in this story, Jesus is the one who takes the initiative. He's the one who goes to the blind man. And for those suffering, the answer is not to flee from God, but to draw near to him. Now, sometimes this might seem like pure good news to us, right? And like another story in the Gospels, we're like blind Bartimaeus. We hear that Jesus is coming. We hear that there is hope for healing. And so we run to him and we cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we rush and we seek to embrace him and say, Lord, I know you are the answer. I need you. I need your healing. I need your presence. But it's not always like that, is it? Sometimes this is a battle and a struggle. And we have to fight for the faith and the strength to even just hold on to God. And I think there's no more powerful biblical illustration of this than in the Psalms, right? Because as you read through the Psalms, you'll find very different prayers in there. Some prayers are full of confidence in God's power, in God's goodness, in God's plan, and full of hope. God, I know you can save. You are my rock. In you I put my trust. But then you read other Psalms, and they're very different, aren't they? The psalmist is wrestling and struggling, struggling with cries and groanings, struggling with God's goodness. Struggling with pain, struggling with despair, struggling with wondering if you will ever see an answer to your prayers and his promises. And we read them and part of us steps back and thinks, how did these raw prayers even make it into the Bible? But the lesson that we should not miss is that they are there and they are there for a reason. To remind us that when we are suffering, the answer is not to pull away. Whether you are full of confidence or whether you are full of struggle and doubt, the answer is to hold on in faith to God. And Jesus doesn't just teach us to draw near to God in suffering. Jesus teaches his disciples and us to draw near to others in their suffering. So let's listen again to what Jesus says in verses 4 and 5. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the main character in the story, isn't he? Jesus is the one who does the healing. Jesus is the one that we need. But he turns to his disciples and then he's the one that tells them, we must do the work of him who sent me. Disciples, you do not get left out of this. And what are the works of God? Well, we could spend the rest of this morning going through the many works of God laid out in Scripture. But certainly, as is the case here in this story, the works of God include bringing Jesus, his message, his grace, 
his compassion and his healing into a world full of suffering. Theological questions are important, friends. We should ask them. But if all we do is speculate about reasons and pass judgment, we have missed the point. We are here to do the works of him who sent us. And notice, too, that Jesus gives us a sense of urgency. He says, night is coming when no one can work. Especially back then without electricity, who was going outside and working in the fields at night? No one. He knows that he is only on earth for a short while, and God has given him much to do. He must do the works of him who sent him. But yet, us too, are we not only here for a short while? What are our lives filled with? What are, what are the purposes that we are pursuing? What are our goals? Because, friends, if we are not being the light of the world, if we are not being the salt he called us to, if we are not doing the works of him who called us, then what are we doing? This is why we're here. This is why he saved us and this is why he has sent us. The same one who is the light of the world has also said, you are the light of the world, church on a hill. And we should not be hidden. And may we not be hidden, especially when there is so much suffering around us. Friends, we are all responsible here. We really are. I praise God for his good work in this body and in our own lives, but we have much work to do, don't we? And let us be careful that we never become complacent and think that we've done enough. Jesus did not stop until he had fully done everything the Father had called him to do. And we should not either. And let us not get caught up in entertainment and in vocation and in career and in success and in relationships and in goals and in a padded retirement. Those are all good and important things, but they are not why we are here. So let us join our master in the work that he has called us to do. So when we see a house on fire, or perhaps we even ourselves are in a place where a fire alarm goes off, what is our first and natural response? Well, maybe I shouldn't use the example of a fire alarm, because we all know our first and natural response with a fire alarm is to sit and do nothing, right? <laughs> um, even though we know we're supposed to leave and line up and all those things. Um, but imagining we are in a building that we know for sure is on fire, our natural response is going to be what? To get out as fast as, I, as we can, to flee from the fire, to flee from the suffering. But what happens when you become trapped in the fire? Imagine you are stuck in a room and the flames are closing in and there is no way out on your own. What can you possibly do? And then, against hope, a fireman breaks into your room and he tells you, come with me. I am here to take you through the fire. Hold on to me. I will cover you. I will protect you and bring you through. And suddenly we are filled with hope. But as we look out that door, we are also filled with fear because we know that to get out of the fire, we need to go through the heart of the fire. And we might respond, what if I get burned? What if I get lost? What if I really can't trust you and you let me go? It feels safer to hide. But what's the fireman's response? You must come with me. There is no other way out of your suffering. I know it is hard to trust me, and I know it feels safer to hide. Yes, it will be blazingly hot. Yes, you will probably get burned. 
but I will take you safely through the fire. No matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, I promise you, if you cling to me, you will get through and I will never let you go. And once we are out of the fire, our Lord Jesus doesn't stop there. He takes us, he puts his fireman's clothes on us, he looks us in the eye, he turns us around, and he says, friend, child, I gave everything to get you out of this fire. And in me, you are safe, and in me, you are protected. Now go, because there is much work to do, and there are many more to save. So by his grace, friends, may we not just be people who draw away from God or draw away from others when we encounter suffering. Maybe be ones who draw towards him. And maybe that's God's word to you today. I know it is hard. I know you are fighting to hold on. You believe and you cry, Lord, help my unbelief. Jesus, in his own life, suffering and death, has already drawn near to you. He has already come near to you. He comes near to you today in the gathering of his people and his word, and he calls you to draw near to him. Or perhaps we're guilty of something else. We take a back seat to suffering. Maybe we're even willing to talk Bible about the suffering we see going on. But if you are a follower of Jesus, he calls you to draw near to others in their suffering. Now, friends, of course, we can't do everything, right? And in fact, out of the, the things that we can do, there's an awful lot we can't fix on our own for sure. But let me ask you this. Is there someone in your life who you have distanced yourself from because of their suffering? Or are there people God has put around you who are going through struggles that you would maybe be hesitant to help or maybe you're busy judging rather than serving? God has called you to do the works of him who sent you because these are the same works he is doing in you and he wants to do through you. So not only does Jesus give us a better reason to suffer and a better response to suffering, our last major point for this passage is that Jesus brings a better result to suffering. Those who trust in Jesus will experience a different outcome to their suffering. What was the future of this blind man apart from Jesus? Not very good. He would have continued in his blindness. He would have continued in his uselessness. He would have continued in his shame. He would have continued in spiritual darkness. Yet the presence of Jesus in our suffering changes everything. And if we look at the actions of Jesus and the responses of the blind man, we get a beautiful picture of how Jesus changes everything and changes the outcome of our suffering. So let me point out three things to you. First, in our suffering, Jesus humbles us. And this is so important. John chapter 9, verse 6 says this, Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. What's our first reaction here? My first reaction is gross. <laughs> Why would Jesus do this? We've seen him heal people instantly before. Why not now? Well, honestly, we're not quite sure, and the scripture doesn't tell us. Sometimes spitting back then was associated with shame, and it could even make someone unclean. Others thought that spit under the right circumstances or from the right person could have healing or magical properties. 
Maybe Jesus is trying to remind us of creation when God makes man out of the dust of the ground. Maybe Jesus is intensifying the man's blindness to magnify the cure. We don't know. But whatever the cause, to have a stranger put spit and mud on your eyes must be very humbling, if not humiliating. But just like the blind man, friends, Southbridge Church, we can never experience the full healing grace of God in our lives if we do not let his presence humble us. We must admit our need for him. We must admit, I am blind. I think I can see. I think I'm okay. I think I'm doing just fine on my own, but I am really not. I am kidding myself. I am blind. I am desperate. And there is no way I can really fix my problem. And friends, we don't always like what Jesus does. When Jesus starts touching your life, one reason you know it's real is it makes you uncomfortable sometimes, doesn't it? He exposes our pride. He exposes our sin. He exposes our idols. He exposes our hearts. And we all want healing, but we don't all want to be humbled. And to be healed, we must allow Jesus to have his way, and we must submit to his hand. Not only does Jesus humble us, but second, in changing our results, Jesus calls us to faith and obedience in our suffering. So after Jesus touches the blind man, he asks him to trust his words and obey what he has told him to do. In verse 7, he says, And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So let's ask this question of ourselves. Once our suffering hearts have been humbled by God's grace, what's the next step? Well, the answer is simple, but it is far from easy often. The answer is, we do whatever God has commanded us to do. For the blind man, this meant finding his stumbling, uncertain, unsure, filled with trepidation, and maybe even terror, is this going to work? To find his stumbling way to a pool and to wash his eyes. Now, this might not have made much sense to him at the time. He had washed his face thousands of times in his life. How was one more wash going to possibly make a difference? But friends, the power is not in the action. The power is in the one who makes the command. And for you and me, whatever God calls us to, it means leaning in in faith and obedience. He always calls us to listen to and obey his word. Maybe this morning he's calling you to listen to and obey to something specific in his word. He always calls us every day to repent of sin and fight against it. Maybe there's a specific sin in your life this morning. He is calling you to confess, repent of, and fight against. Remember, sin is often a battle. It's not a one-time thing. And he is calling you to fight that battle. He always calls us to live in community with other believers. And that doesn't mean just coming to church. That means loving others and being loved by others. That means entering into relationships. That means getting to know people. That means getting outside of your comfort zone. That means receiving grace from them and being willing to give grace. And yes, it even means forgiving each other sometimes when you do a really bad job at it. Maybe God is calling you to lean in more to his people and into his body. 
He always calls us to love and serve others and share his message. Maybe there's someone he's calling you to love and serve and share his message with. He always calls us to worship and love him as our greatest treasure. Maybe he is calling you to let go of specific idols in your suffering so that you can learn to love and treasure him more. It might not be easy, especially when you're suffering. And here's, this is important too, friends. It may look very different from what you would have done before you started suffering. We can't kid ourselves sometimes and think that things are going to just go on the way they were before. And it might not make sense that following him and having faith and doing the next thing is really going to give you life and healing. But remember, the power is not in the action. The power is in the one who gave the command. We put our hope in him. Jesus humbles us. Jesus calls us to obedient faith. And then Jesus heals our suffering by opening our blind eyes. So first, and let's not go too fast over this, Jesus heals his physical problem. Jesus came into a broken world to bring God's kingdom. Jesus came to heal and restore because that is part of God's kingdom work. And in him there is real hope for healing and suffering now. God can and does still work his healing power in your body, in your relationships. And many, even many of you can bear witness to that in your life. So we have great hope. But even if it doesn't happen right away, or it doesn't happen in our timing, or the way we would expect, in him is the promise of full healing one day. The promise. In God's kingdom, there will be no blind, or crippled, or sick. There will be no broken relationships. Our suffering may be hard in the present, but the promise of eternity is healing and joy. There is no one like Jesus with the power to save. There is no one better than Jesus to put our hope in. But we might be surprised when we read this whole story because the story doesn't end with the healing, does it? The healing is not even the most important part of the story. In fact, John here puts a very powerful double meaning into blindness. Because even more than physical healing, what does this blind man need? Jesus heals his spiritual problem. You see, this man needed something much more important than the healing of his eyes. And I encourage you to read the whole chapter later if you have time and hear his whole story. And we, as we look at the story, we see an incredible radical change of how this man understands who Jesus is. Remember, at the beginning, Jesus is a stranger. Maybe he's heard his name in the streets of Jerusalem. But other than that, he does not know him, and all he can do is hear his voice. But by the end of the story, here's what it says. Let's read the last couple of verses of the chapter, verses 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, the blind man. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking you, to you today. Blind man, man born blind, you have seen your Lord. And his response, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. Friends, you see, we think the goal is to just get rid of our suffering. We get so caught up in fixing our suffering 
that we forget about the one who is the answer to our suffering. The real treasure in the end is not the end of our suffering, but knowing the one who has the love and power to do it. The real hope in this life, friends, and this is good for corona, and this is good for protests, is not having a normal life. The real hope in life is having new and eternal life in the kingdom of Jesus and his Father. The man born blind suffering did not end at the end of Jesus' healing him. Just read the rest of the chapter. Your and my suffering will not end when God takes away that one thing you wish you would take away in your life. There will be more to come. The greatest gift Jesus can give us and the greatest good our suffering can produce is to experience a deeper relationship with the one who came to save us. If our suffering ends and we still don't have Jesus and we still don't know God, we are still blind, we are still in darkness, we are almost worse off than we were before. But those who suffer with Jesus, the story does not end in suffering. The story does not even end in our healing, though that does happen. The story ends in the presence of Jesus. The story ends with seeing Jesus face to face for who he is, our Lord, who is worthy of our obedience, a God who is worthy of our love and our lives and our worship. The end of the story of suffering, friends, when you suffer with Jesus, is worship is getting down on your knees and saying, Lord, you are worthy. Lord, you are good. Lord, everything in the past makes sense because of you. I am willing to have that be the story of my life because you have changed everything with your presence. I worship you and I love you and I give my life for you. And friends, if we wish to receive God's healing grace in our suffering, there are things we must do. By his grace, we must draw near. By his grace, we must be humbled. Even in our suffering, we still have pride, don't we? We still think highly of ourselves somewhere deep in our hearts. By his grace, and imperfectly, that's important, imperfectly, we must seek to trust and obey him by his strength and his power. And by his grace, he will one day free you from suffering, Christian. But knowing him and loving him will be your greatest treasure. So let's close our time together with a few final thoughts. We have seen in the story of the man born blind that the presence of Jesus changes everything in our suffering. God gives us a new reason to suffer by promising to do his good work in us. God draws near to us in our suffering and calls us to draw near to him and to others as they suffer. And God changes the results of our suffering for those who cling to him in obedience and faith. But friends, before we leave, let's never forget, we must never forget that this God who calls us to suffer faithfully for him is no stranger to suffering himself. Rather than remain in the safety of heaven, rather than running from pain and evil, rather than destroying pain and evil on the spot, Jesus willingly enters into it. Jesus willingly was tired. Jesus willingly was weak. Jesus willingly was spat at 
and mocked and ridiculed. Jesus willingly was falsely accused and condemned. Jesus willingly was brutally murdered. Jesus willingly suffered the rejection that the God of the universe never deserved to come and to rescue us. He, the perfect Holy One who needed nothing, gave up everything. On the cross, Jesus experienced physical and spiritual suffering beyond anything you or I will ever have to endure. And he did it willingly and he did it joyfully because of his love for you and me and because of his love for his Father. If Jesus was willing to suffer, if Jesus was willing to hold fast to save us, can't we, Christian, be willing to suffer and hold fast to him who can save us? So let's finish the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. So I recently read an article uh, from her reflecting on the 50-year anniversary of her diving accident. Now, when we think about that, we might think back and think 50 years in a wheelchair, 50 years wasted, 50 years lost to suffering, Yet far from being worse off for her suffering, because of it, the presence of Jesus in her suffering, she feels that she is better for it. Now she's an author of some 17 books, a public speaker, and a mentor to many who have gone through similar things. Johnny is a powerful example of how Jesus can transform suffering into something better. In 2017, her organization, Johnny and Friends, held 27 family retreats in the United States and 23 retreats in less resourced nations, reaching thousands of special needs families with compassion and for Christ. Christian physical therapists on her team of Wheels for the World had teams in more than 40 countries, delivering Bibles, giving the salvation message, and thinking about suffering, hand-fitting wheelchairs to needy people with disabilities. Hundreds of her Cause for Life interns worked in orphanages overseas, showing people that spina bifida isn't a voodoo curse and that people aren't better off dying than disabled. Reflecting on these past 50 years, she has accomplished a tremendous amount by the power and grace and for the glory of God. And in reflecting on those 50 years, here's what she says in her own words. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair. I would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. The process is difficult, but affliction isn't a killjoy. I don't think you could find a happier follower of Jesus than me. The more my paralysis helps me, get disentangled from my sin, the more joy bubbles up within. I can't tell you how many nights I have lain in my bed, unable to move, stiff with pain, and have whispered near tears, Oh Jesus, I'm so happy, so very happy in you. God shares his joy on his terms only, and those terms call for us to suffer in some measure like his son. I'll gladly take it. And in her testimony, she says this. I can't wait for the day when I'm given a brand new glorified body. I'm going to stand up, stretch, dance, kick, do aerobics, 
comb my own hair, blow my own nose. And what is so poignant is that I'll finally be able to wipe away my own tears. But I won't need to. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that God will personally wipe away every tear. There will be no more need to cry. The presence of Jesus now, friends, gives us everything we need to endure suffering. And the presence of Jesus in the future guarantees that one day there will be no more need to suffer. And friends, our story isn't Johnny's. Our lives are not Johnny's. But God still has a work and a plan and a purpose for you too. Let us hold fast to him in faith and obedience today. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We love when you get the glory. And in this story, you are the one who gets the glory. The disciples were so far off. And God, sometimes we are so far off. Just the way we're thinking about the situation is wrong. And yet, what do you do? You sent your son. He draws near to us. He gives us hope. He heals our eyes. He humbles us. He teaches us the next steps. And we realize that this pain and that this suffering, while difficult, is only temporary. And we realize that this pain and this suffering, while trying, is like a heavenly wind pushing us, pulling us, drawing us to you, to joy, to hope, to what really matters to your kingdom. And God, let none of us be found outside of that kingdom. If it takes blindness to do it, so be it. If it takes suffering to do it, so be it. If it takes suffering to experience joy, to know you, to worship you, to find you who is the one of the joys, that, the source of the joys that we all love, then it is worth it. And that is a hard thing to say. And so I pray that you would work in our hearts with whatever you have given us, whatever good gifts, good or hard, to trust and love and seek you. We love you and we thank you that you alone are the answer and the healer. In your precious name, amen.